explain it to me like I'm a 10 year old. Today, I am very lucky to have Ward Horton with me. Ward is an actor who's been acting in films and plays for decades. He's played roles in movies and TV shows such as Annabelle and Pure Genius. And he's also acted in the Broadway play Torch Song. Today, we will discuss the current actors and writers strikes and his career as an actor. I am so excited for our interview. Hi, Ward. How are you doing? Charlie, hi. How are you, buddy? It's really nice to to be with you. I've uh, I've gotten to listen to a lot of your podcasts, and I am uh, very honored that you've asked me to join you. Well, thank you so much. I'm I'm so honored that you could be here. Well, my first question for you today is, what is at stake in the outcome of the actors and writers' strike? It's a great question. Um, I think the value of what we do in our industry as artists is is at stake right now. Um, I, I think that we it is the the business model has changed in the way that people consume their entertainment. And uh, if if the contracts don't change to reflect the change in the business model, then it's not adding up. Um, and and at, at the end of the day, what's really at stake is the livelihood of many, many people. Um, there are 180,000 SAG-AFTRA members. It's a huge group of people. And as you can imagine, uh, there used to be a term that said that uh, 2% of the actors do 98% of the work. Um, there are Obviously, the the people that you see on TV all the time, on in films, in the theaters, they're doing quite well. But there's a whole lot of people that are working paycheck to paycheck, and um, if the business model is changing, the contracts don't change, and those people are really at at risk. Um, I was, if if you get into the numbers a little bit, um, the way that it works right now. If you if you see somebody that's an actor and you see them as a, a guest star on a on a TV show and they do that three or four times a year, um, you think, well, they're they're doing really well. They're pretty successful. Um, unfortunately, that person, if that's what they're doing and that's all they're doing, they don't even qualify for health insurance under the current contract. Um, it's it's devastating to people and. Um, people that you have seen on hundreds of episodes of a television show that were that they did in the early days of the streaming service, they they can't afford health insurance. They're out of health insurance right now um, because those contracts weren't set up to protect them. Um, so there's there's a lot at stake here. Uh, you know, there's there's many deal points that that are being addressed as far as generative AI and the streaming residuals and how we as actors audition for these projects. They're not in person anymore. They're all done remotely, um, which means actors are having to buy cameras and lighting and all of that. And and the casting offices are seeing more people because they can just send it out and get everybody to respond and do it on their own. And they don't have office space. They're saving themselves a lot of money while none of that's coming back towards the actor. So there's a lot of deal points, but but yes, ultimately what's at stake is the uh, ability for artists to live a a life that they can they continue to do what they love to do. Well, I heard I, a fact that shocked me was something like 
87% of the SAG-AFTRA members don't make over $26,000 a year. Mm -hmm. Could you explain why it's so hard for actors to make a living wage? Um, because there's 180,000 of us out there uh, that are trying to do it. Um, and they, like I said, the contracts aren't set up to compensate them appropriately. Um, no, it's, it's a, it's a really tough business. And yes, there is a, everybody, you know, one of the things I hear a lot about is it's like, Oh, Ward is an actor, you know, must be great for you because there's so much content out there right now. There must be so many opportunities for you. Well, yes, but there also isn't a lot of loyalty anymore to what we do. Um, it used to be when I was growing up, you had a show on network television and it would run, you know, run three or four or five years. The, the big ones would run, you know, seven to 10 to, you know, a Friends or a Seinfeld 20 years, right? It, it And th then you have that loyalty. Now shows are lucky if they get a second season and you have to be a hit show to get three and four seasons. So there's, yes, there's a lot of content out there, but there also isn't, a, there's a lot of bouncing around and throwing spaghetti against the wall just to see what sticks. Um, so it is, there, it's, a, it's a cutthroat business um, and uh, it, it's really hard to find consistent work. You know, one of the things that the writers are dealing with right now is the, uh, in, in, in their strike is that they have they've changed the model in that they have these small writers rooms. These they call them mini writers rooms, where they're um, hiring what would normally be a season's worth of writers. So let's say you're doing a show that's 13 episodes. You might hire 13 writers, have them in a room. Each of those writers is going to write one of the 13 episodes, but they're all co collaborating to to write all of it to, to have the story and, and the person in charge is the showrunner those 13 writers are hired throughout the season so that might be a eight nine month shooting season they they have that contract that whole time now what they're doing is they're hiring those 13 writers or now let's say they're only six and seven episode seasons eight six to eight episode seasons in a lot of tv shows that's the new business model they're hiring the four, five, six writers to break those scripts during a, you know, 10 week period or something before production starts. Then they're firing all the actors or just are those writers getting rid of those writers and only keeping on the showrunner for the entirety of the production. So for the next, you know, uh, 10 to 12 weeks. So those writers have to get to be and, and the showrunner then is the one that's overseeing all of production those writers are never getting to get on set they never get to experience what's like to be on set which is so important for writers that want to create their own contact become showrunners themselves in the future um so it's it it and so then those writers have to have three, four shows that they do these mini writer rooms every year just to be able to make the living that they used to be able to make. And it just doesn't add up anymore. So, it, you know, another reason it just has to change. Right. This is obviously incredibly messed up. But when you hear a studio executive say that actors demands aren't realistic, what do you and other actors and writers think of that? Well, we get angry, but we also have to do it in a in a uh, in a way that uh, our our voices are heard, and and we're doing that through through, through picketing right now, and and obviously our our strike, and to if if our value is not being 
um, you know, represented, then we need to withhold our, our work. And with without the artistry of what we do, uh, we don't have the, the studios don't have what they need. They don't have that content. Um, I, I think I also heard something recently that um, and, and the, these these CEOs, these big executives at these at these streaming services are are making incredibly large amounts of money. Um, I, I read something that uh, the top two percent of actors, I believe, make. I think it was the top 2% of actors make $2 billion a year. The top 10 CEOs make 1 billion. Um, it's, it, it's just the balance isn't right. And so um, if, if our value isn't being um, compensated, then I, th I think that what we need to do is stand together, stand in solidarity with our fellow unions um, and, uh, and, kind of demand what we need before we go back to work. Exactly. And there's a couple focal points of this, the strike, why they're striking. One of those is residual payments. Could you explain what these residual payments are and why streaming mm -hmm. has kind of taken them away? Yeah. So it's funny. Residual payments are a tough one to figure out. I mean, it, in, 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 in a word or two, you, you, it's obviously you're getting paid after you've been paid for your original work on the show historically you've been paid for every time that show has been shown again going forward into history you will always have that money that will always come to you every time that is that show is shown historically we've been able to, to to monitor that or the the people at sag have been able to monitor that we as actors have a tough time following it all and would but we get checks in the mail and we felt SAG, we think that SAG is taking care of us and, and monitoring it appropriately. Well, with the, with the rise of streaming services, um, you don't know, they're not disclosing how often a show, how popular a show is. So for instance, a Netflix, you, you don't, they don't tell you how often that show is being watched. So therefore they can't pay you on that. Um, and so when, in, in the past, when we have been able to count on those residual payments for years to come, and in my children will get residual payments, it goes into your estate, you, you will continue to get that even after I'm gone. We, we haven't, they haven't figured out how to calculate that at the streaming level yet. And so, um, you know, that's, that's what one of the obviously the big talking points in all of this negotiation. And the other crazy thing I heard is the use of AI and how some studios are proposing to kind of scan like extras and other actors be able to use their image in voice forever. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Uh, that's yeah. insane. The generative AI is a, is a huge issue and it's one that there's a lot of it. A lot of it's unknown to us. We don't know how far it's going to go. Um, you know, one thing is interesting is that, uh, one, one of the big problems that, that the writers have had is that they have never had streaming in their contract. Back in, I think, I want to say 2000, 2001, we're talking so long ago, and I, I might have that, that date wrong, but the directors were able to get streaming into their contracts before there was even streaming. It was a last second deal point that the producers just kind of threw in there because they're like, oh yeah, whatever. That's not something that we really know and don't think it'll ever happen. And so they were able to get that in. Getting it into the contract is a big thing. The actors do have it in their, con their current contract, 
just not not enough. It's it's just it's there. There's very little that comes to us uh, residually from that. Um, the writers have none of that. So try they're trying to get it into their contract. Once it's in the contract, then you can adjust it as time goes on. Um, so now we're here at the same thing with generative AI. We don't know exactly what it's going to be, but we need to get it in the contract and we need to make sure that it is monitored and adjusted accordingly as time goes on. But yes, you are right. They are talking about uh, taking extras and scanning their their images and using and, and paying them a half day rate right now. It's a buyout right now. So they can use their likeness and image forever they can they can use their voice they can change their dial they can change dialogue they can do all of this stuff and and they don't even really want to talk at at the negotiating table about it so it's it's really scary um and uh it's something that's going to need to be figured out before this contract comes to a resolution how do you think the strike will play out right it's it's been going on only for a bit and there's been a couple others in history what do you think is going to happen um, you know, it's, it's funny. I, I thought I thought this might happen. Might they might be able to figure this out a little bit faster than they are? Um, we our strike was supposed to happen. I, I believe it was uh, Jul, uh, I'm sorry, June thirtieth, June thirty first. Um, they extended it to July fourteenth. Uh, we thought that meant that maybe they were negotiating in a productive way, and obviously they weren't. Um, and apparently they're very far apart in, in those deal points. Um, and so I don't know. I don't think anybody really knows. Um, right now, I don't even think they're talking. Um, there had been something with the writers that there was going to, I had heard something about a, a three-month period that there were, the, the studios had a lot of holding deals with certain writers, um, certain showrunners that were making a lot of money. And they maybe felt like they overpaid for those. So I believe... In those contracts, there were a three-month strike period. So after three months of striking, those deals became null and void. They were allowed to strike for three months, but after that, those deals became null and void and and they could get out of them. And um, so I kind of thought that maybe that three months was going to happen and the writer strike was going to be you know, uh, figured out. And that's not happening. Um, so I, I wish I could answer your question, Charlie, but... Really, nobody knows, and even the people in the, at the negotiating table, I don't think know how this is going to play out. Some, some obviously, somebody has to give, um, and uh, I know that our union is holding strong. Yeah, it's also definitely a tough spot for actors who are getting no work because of this, right? Like, how uh, how is that going to um, affect like the film industry going forward? Oh, in a big way. I mean, it, it's not just actors; it's not just writers; it's it's the crew; it's the, the the craft services the people that's the catering uh the wardrobe everybody involved every time a film comes to a town and and uh you know uh, provides employment to so many people uh, all of that's shut down and and it's it's devastating to the whole industry um and and not just people that are watching the films but the people that are involved uh in, in the process of making it so um yeah uh, it's 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 really hard, and especially for the you know I, I feel lucky that I've been able to work and and have a career, but there's a lot of people that are working paycheck to paycheck, and when this shuts down, you know it's unfortunately a lot of people are going to have to give it up and go find something else, um, and and we're going to lose a lot of talented creative people, um, you know it's something that and it's their life experiences that uh, that you know 
they 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 you know form um, who, who you are as a person. It, it, I'm I'm taking a tangent here because I was thinking about generative AI and and I heard something earlier today that you know you can uh, uh, AI can write a script right. They can you can put in the the input. It can write a script, but that AI has never you know been in a fight. That that AI has never loved someone, right? It's never lost someone, right? These life experiences that th these actors that we're talking about that are losing their jobs, they, they've, they've never, it's never felt something like that. So you, what you'll get is a script that's mediocre at best, and we, we you, you, it can't be that. We, you need the creatives, the writers, the actors, the director. You need those people behind it, and um, you're not going to get it with AI. Yeah. Well, I'd love to hear a bit more about your story. Uh, why did you want to become an actor? Mm -hmm. Well, um, you know, it's funny. It took me a while to realize that I, I wanted to be an actor. When I was young, uh, I had a lot of energy. My parents probably needed to find a way to to kind of focus that energy on something. And they probably thought I was a ham. And so they got me involved in, in theater, in in school and community theater where I grew up in, in Durham, North Carolina. Um, I, I was doing plays. I was also, I was into sports, but I was also doing plays. So in high school, I was one of those guys that did, you know, the three seasons for me were basketball, baseball, and theater. Um, and, and I loved it. It was, I was an anomaly. I mean, there weren't a lot of people doing that. You, and where I was growing up, you were kind of either the creative or the jock. So I, I love the fact that I was able to kind of bounce between both. Um, I did it. I went to Wake Forest University and I, and I did it my freshman year in college, um, right away. I did a main stage production of a Neil Simon play lost in Yonkers. And I, and I loved it, but I also thought that I'm not, I'm not going to do this the rest of my life. This doesn't make any sense. Who, who's an actor who makes it as an actor, the odds are stacked against me. So I gave it up and I, I declared a business major. I went into finance. I worked for an asset management firm in Chapel Hill, North Carolina for a couple of years, um, married my wife and, uh, and then 9-11 happened. And I remember working in my office in Chapel Hill and, and seeing this on TV and the devastation of what was happening. And, and I just felt this yearning to, that I was watching people that, that were, you know, lives were coming, were ending shortly short and and they had maybe weren't doing what they love to do and and i felt that strongly so i decided that i wanted to and i had a talk with my wife and then i decided that i wanted to get back into acting it was something that i was really passionate about i knew it was going to be a long road and i wanted to do it now and, and that's kind of what she said she said now is the time not not down the road when you're having a midlife crisis so um i got back into it um i did about a year's worth of banking and regional theater down in North Carolina, um, and then moved to New York and kind of built my career from the ground up. I did student films and off off Broadway and whatever I could kind of get my hands on to kind of build a career, build a reel of work. I started studying. I mean, that was the, that was the first thing I had not, I'd done a lot of theater. I hadn't done much film and TV work and stuff in front of the camera. So I found some great studios to work out of. Then I found an amazing coach who I still work with to this day. Um, and, um, you know, 
it's a tough road. It's been a long time. It hasn't been a quick, a quick ascent for me, but it's every year's felt a little bit better than the year before, which has kind of kept me going. And, and I love it. And if I didn't love it, I wouldn't do it because it's a crazy business, but I, I do love it. And, um, and I hope to be able to continue to do it into my, to my old, old days. Was there a moment that you felt you kind of broke through and, and started kind of achieving what you wanted to achieve in, in acting? You know, I've been asked that before. And because it's been such a slow burn, I, I don't know. I mean, obviously, there were some bigger roles that came along that maybe took me to the next level. When I when I booked the the film Annabelle, which was a studio film, and, and I got to play the male lead in it. And that was a big deal for, for me. That was it was it was huge. Um, but it was also uh, an accumulation of, of lots of years of hard work and a lot of no's. I mean, this, this business, you hear no way more than you hear. Yes. Um, so, and I had done, you know, a couple lines on shows and then you get the guest star a little bit more, and then you get the independent film, which, you know, is so, I have so much fun working on those, those independent films because you feel such a part of the creative process. When you, when you do a studio film, you feel like you're just, you know, you're along for the ride a little bit. Um, yeah, it's harder to find your voice in that. Um, but you know, as I get older, I, I think my I, my voice is a little bit stronger in that. Um, but that was big. And then you know, getting a, a TV show, uh, be a series regular on a TV show at CBS was really pretty fun. Um, and then and ultimately for me, the 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 biggest kind of feather in my cap was being on Broadway. I, I don't think I ever thought that that was in the cards for me. I'm not a musical theater person, um, so. And there's just not a lot of just straight plays on Broadway. So when that opportunity came along, I jumped at it and I had an amazing experience and I can't wait to some someday do it again. Well, personally, what movie uh, or, or film or, or play were you proudest to be a part of? Well, it was definitely it was definitely Torch Song on Broadway um, for me, creatively getting to go back to my roots of of a rehearsal room, you know, in, in film and TV, there's, there's not a lot of rehearsal. I, I do the rehearsal on my own. I do it with my coaches. Um, I do it. Uh, I have a study group that I work with on a weekly basis and we're always bringing in auditions or work that we're going to be shooting. Um, so I, I always make that up, but, but this was a, a theater. You were in a rehearsal space for three to four weeks, getting ready for a show. And for me to be able to dive that deep into that character surrounded by those amazing creatives. Um, that was uh, the, 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 the pinnacle of, of my work at this point. Um, you know, financially it's not, but it's it's creatively, it's it's the best. And what is your favorite part about being an actor? Um, the free food, no, I'm kidding. Um, not the free food. <laughs> Although the free food is great, Charlie. It's yeah. really nice. Um, I would say uh, it's just the opportunity to step in somebody else's shoes. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, to, to be able to step outside yourself, to do the research, to really put yourself in the position of someone who's going through something that you may or may not have been through in your life. And sometimes it's really fun when you haven't experienced that. It's a little harder. You have to, you know, you you have to love every character. I played some some pretty bad people in my life, um, pretty bad characters. And and you you still you can't hate your character. You have to find the good. You have to find something in them that you can hold on to as an actor. So because that's what shines through. 
and then and then and then it makes the audience kind of think well is is that guy that bad or yeah you know so um uh i think that's it i mean for me it's it's the creative process behind it and then the actual application of it in in the moment it's been so amazing having you here my final question for you today is what is your advice to someone who has a big audacious goal but is afraid to go for it um wow um well i i am a true believer that failure is really really important to to success um if you talked if you talked to and I, I know you have talked to many successful people on this podcast and and i'm sure that every one of them agrees that the failures that they've had have built the success that they've they've achieved um so uh if you if you have something that you are passionate about that you believe in yourself uh, it might not happen right away it might take time you might have setbacks it might be a you know, one step backwards for two steps forward type situation. But the belief and the hard work and the determination and the belief in yourself is what is going to get you to the finish line. And and that finish line might change, right? I mean, that finish line for me is a constant, it's a, it's a, it's a moving target. And so, you know, know that there are a lot of small successes that, that, that often build into to bigger ones and bigger achievements and bigger goals. So um, you just got to go for it right? You got to go for it. Thank you so much. I really, really enjoyed having you here. Charlie, it was awesome. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I'm honored that you asked me to be on here. I'm super impressed with you and uh, good luck with everything.